week. I said that Pastor Adam would be starting his series on relationships um, this week, but that will actually be next week. Uh, so we get one of those rare uh, opportunities where there's sort of a, a one-off sermon in between series here. And during those times, I think it's a good time to look at the book of Psalms. The, the, the Psalms are meant to guide the church in, in worship. As Bonhoeffer said, it is the Bible's prayer book. It, it, it becomes the book that, that leads the church, that models that ancient heart of the church to, to approach God. How, how do we come to our God in worship and in prayer? The Psalms are laid out for us that way. Um, Brueggemann, a, a commentator, wrote an essay on Psalms and the Life of Faith. And he categorizes the Psalms into three different uh, categories for us that, that help us as readers as we walk through it. And there, there are three ways that we orient ourselves to God. So the Psalms set up, how are we approaching to God? What is our perspective? What is our orientation to God as we approach? The first one is he calls just Psalms of orientation. It would be when we approach God in a positive and a blessed state, where, where we come and things are going well for us, and what we know to be true about God is in alignment with how we feel about God and how we are experiencing life. And there's lots of psalms that then kind of overflow with joy. You see those, they testify to creation, they testify to his law, they, they testify to the goodness of our God. The second type is what he calls psalms of dislocation or disorientation. And this is when the, 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 our orientation is that we feel estranged from God. That what we know to be true about God is not our emotional state, is not our experience, doesn't seem to line up with what we know to be true about God. It, there's a, a disorientation. And so oh, these psalms come across as lament, as a pleading for deliverance, as a, as a kind of a request that we would turn to God The final is what he calls psalms of reorientation. And this is when the psalmist is is reconciled to God. He's walked through that valley and he's come out the the other side. And he he is now even more in line. There's a new depth. There's a new understanding to his God as he praises him and he worships him. This morning we are in that middle one, a, a psalm of dislocation or disorientation. Over a third of the psalms are, or about a third of the psalms could be categorized in, in this way. Of orienting to God in a way of, of what we know to be true about him just is not our experience. It's not what we're feeling. There's a sort of a brutal truth, a brutal honesty, a sort of a raw emotional aspect, an unfiltered sort of aspect as these psalmists cry out and they say things that, uh, about God and to God that, that seem so inappropriate or untrue. Yet, here in the book of prayer that leads us, how should we pray? How should we worship our God? A third of the psalms are categorized in, in this way. In almost every one of those psalms, though, it, it ends with you know, a glimmer of hope and light. There's a promise, there's a truth, there is hope, there is something to cling on to. Except for two psalms, Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, which 
we'll look at this morning. Psalm 39, it, it ends with, God, turn your face away from me. In the sense the psalmist is feeling such hardship and oppression, and from his senses it feels like this is God, like God's providence is so heavy upon him, he can't take it anymore. He would rather have God just turn away from him, leave me alone, God. And then Psalm 88, which ends in darkness. There's a bleak picture here at the end of Psalm 88. It ends with a depressing note, kind of a horrible groan. One commentator calls it the darkest corner of the Psalter. In fact, it's disturbing to some people the way it ends so much that there's a lot of commentators that, will, that have suggested that Psalm 89 and Psalm 88 really should be considered as one psalm together, that they were inappropriately divided. And all the evidence would suggest otherwise. It's just that impulse we have of, you know, I don't like how darkly this is ending. It's the impulse, impulse we, we kind of all feel a little bit, isn't it? We, we want that happily ever after moment. We want some sort of, of, of ending that is going to be a happier ending than what we have here. And yet, that's not what the psalm gives us here. We feel that impulse, I think, especially as, as a community, as a church. Don't you, you, you want people to come in and you want them just to be okay. You, you want them to have a smile on their face. You want it to be everything to be fine. And even if it's, if it's difficult, we kind of just want to like throw a verse at it or something maybe a bit trite and just have it stick and land. And when we leave, we're all happy, right? Everyone just smile and let's go out together happy. We want a positive spin on it. Psalm 88 doesn't allow that. The psalmists throughout, they paint a very real picture of our faith. Often, we reject a prosperity gospel, but yet we still often sort of sell a, a form of the gospel that equates sort of happiness right here and now with believing in Jesus. And sometimes our songs can be overly trite and reflect that, and, and the liturgy can sometimes re- reflect that, and not a reality to what a life of faith looks like. The psalmists are real. The life is hard. Life can be really dark and difficult. One, just as a human, it can be difficult in an age that has fallen but even more so as a Christian, trying to live in a way that to honor God, to recognize that all things are from his hand, that tries to live in such a way that esteems others highly, that loves our enemy. It's just hard. It's just difficult. But why Psalm 39, Psalm 88? Why include, though, such a despairing psalm in the hymn book for the church, the, the book of worship, the book of prayer. You know, why would you include something that, that ends so hopelessly? And I would say this, because at some point, we all have to come to God in the dark. 
We all will worship God in the midst of darkness. For some, that darkness might just be a real short season. For others, that darkness might be most of your life. I almost entitled the sermon, How to Stay Christian When Your Life Falls Apart. We need these psalms so that when things get dark and the darkness feels like there's not even a glimmer of light shining through, that we don't reject God and run away from our faith. This is part of the worship book of the church. We need this because we need to know how to worship God in the dark because there will be times when that's exactly how you have to live and act and you can't reject your God. There's a book we have in the bookstop. I've mentioned this to a couple people. I think it's called Dangerous Calling, something like that. And it, it's a book. It's not that old, eight, ten years old, something like that. Um, and it, it's mainly for pastors, but it's also just for people engaged in Christian ministry. And it, it talks about the pitfalls and the dangers that come with engaging in ministry. On the back of that book, there are five uh, you know, little blurbs that people write promoting the book. They're all from Christian leaders who would be in our kind of gospel coalition, reformedish evangelical circles. So people who you would read, look at, talk about. Of uh, those five, uh, there's one guy who just recently was dismissed from ministry for a a lot of sort of hidden sin and sexual sin, the things he had lied about. There's another guy, a second on the blurb, a guy who was just expelled from his church, facing a lot of litigation for financial corruption, for abusive behavior, for just some wild things going on. Third guy on that blurb, there are five blurbs on this book about the pitfalls of ministry, the dangerous calling. Third guy, just recently divorced his wife, announced in an Instagram post that he was beginning to listen to the voices in his heart or something like that. And about a week after that, just a couple weeks ago, initially kind of finalized that he is post-Christian now. In his own words, that he has fallen away. You know, when pressure mounts, when darkness comes... We can't just abandon the faith and walk away. That's what these psalms are here for, to teach us. How do we pray? How do we worship? What does the life of faith look like when it's really dark? This psalm ends with the word darkness. I don't know how your what you're reading from, your translation reads exactly. The NIV ends it this way. It says, You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. I think that is a good translation. My friends have become darkness. The idea there is that my best friend is darkness. Darkness is my friend. In the end, that it just the feeling is darkness is more comfort to me than even God right now. As we go through it, 
darkness as we talk about it, darkness is not um, like we would think the satanic darkness. Darkness is just that heavy depression, suffering, anguish. And it ends with this, that statement sort of, who is my friend? Oh, darkness. Let's walk through this passage together. You know, hopefully I'm not just going to totally depress everyone this morning. Let's walk through this passage together. I want to do two things as we do that. And then I will look and we'll just make five different observations about the passage. So it begins, chapter 88 of Psalm, verses 1 and 2, is this cry of distress. And there's a couple things we just want to notice as we go through it. First, it, it is a prayer. You see that in verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. So this is a prayer. And it is offered, it is called upon to God. To the Lord. As he says here, the God of my salvation. Or as the NIV say, the God who saves me. As dark and as, as heavy and as much turmoil as he is facing, as far away as he feels from God, he is still addressing the God of his salvation. He is still coming before God in prayer. And not just once. He says day and night. This is sort of his ongoing experience. Again and again and again. That this this cry of distress takes place to the God who saves him. And it is a prayer. Verses 3 through 5 then start to rehearse the psalmist's troubles. And really it's just an impressive list of troubles that he deals with. And it gives all of this imagery of death. It talks about Sheol, the pit, the grave, the dead, the slain, the defiled bodies. It mounts up with this imagery of death. He's using it to picture just the serious trouble that he is in. An overwhelming picture of darkness and despair painted here. I don't know... We don't know the exact trouble that he is facing. I don't know if it is actual sort of physical death, something like that. I would get the sense it's more of an internal just anguish that he's facing. And that's the picture that is painted here. Then verses 6 through 9. The psalmist now turns and he kind of points to God as the source of his problems. It is God who is afflicting him. It is God who has brought him down. Look at verse 7. It says, Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. It's just, it keeps coming on and on and on. The providence of God is heavy. Again, he, he acknowledges God's sovereignty, acknowledges God's control, but in doing so, he begins to say, like, This is your fault. This is your anger. This is your wrath. This this affliction is from you, God. In verses 10 to 12, then, he begins to question God, and he asks them these questions. Verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? 
a couple things I think are assumed there. One, that there is a sense from him, I think there's an honesty to the question, that to be alive is, is to worship God, is to seek to live for God. And he's saying, why are you crushing me so heavily that I can't do that? Can the dead raise up to praise you? So there's also sort of a sarcasm about it. If you want me to praise you, if you want me to live for you, if you want my life to be like that, why are you crushing me so heavily that I can't even do that? Verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of the forgetfulness? You declare these things about you, but I don't know them because my experience is one of despair and death and darkness. How am I supposed to praise you? How am I supposed to trust you when you're afflicting me like this? Then verses 13 through 18, the psalmist concludes by giving another litany of troubles that have afflicted him. He speaks of God rejecting him, of being afflicted. He, he starts, kind of turns to exaggeration. Look at verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. It seems like he begins to reinterpret life now based on his current sufferings, where you forget all of the blessings, all the good that God has given you, and now it just seems like not, your life has been nothing but troubles. He throws that towards... God. And then verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or I think probably more appropriately, darkness has become my friend. That's my only friend left, is this darkness. Now, We're going to give five points, and, I, and there is hope in this text. But in doing so, I don't want to flip the text and take the heavy weightiness of it away from it. If there is light, it's just kind of shadowy glimpses of light around the edges. It's not piercing light through the center. There is a cloud of darkness. And I, again, I want to not immediately soften it. Because we need to learn how to worship and how to pray in the dark. So we don't fall away when darkness comes. Alright, my first point here is that darkness can linger. Darkness can linger. It seems like he is, he is praying to his God. He's doing it day and night and day and night. He opens with prayer and he closes with prayer. And there is darkness at the beginning and there is darkness at the end. There is a, a commentator, Derek Kinder. He's written quite a bit on Psalms. And he, he speaks about the darkness in a helpful way. He, he speaks there's really two forms of darkness that the Psalms speak to. That sort of externally, that your circumstances... Those things around you have just turned against you. There's enemies against you. Your relationships have failed. Whatever it might be. And so your circumstances are darkness. It surrounds you. But then there's a second sort of darkness. And that's the internal type of anguish. 
That you just feel hopeless and helpless internally. That you just feel overwhelmed and consumed. He says there's a few times where both of these darknesses collide. Psalm 88 is one of them. And when that darkness comes, it can linger. A simple prayer doesn't always make it go away. Now, how is this helpful? (laughs) Like, hey, darkness can come and it can last a long time. I, I think it's helpful because it prepares us for the reality of the Christian life. If you walk into the Christian life thinking, you know, it is just sort of light and happy. Uh, Because I trust in Christ, I'm going to escape some of the real hard things, some of the real darkness. Jesus gives me joy, and that joy can't be stolen, and so I'll always be happy. Yeah, Jesus gives you joy, that joy can't be stolen. But a lot of times, life is devastatingly hard. A lot of times the happily ever after is not a possibility for you. When you lose someone you love, when the relationship that you have and it's gone, that the happily ever after with that person, that's not a possibility anymore. Sometimes there's a health diagnosis for you that the happily ever after is not a possibility anymore. Having the right expectation that there will be seasons of darkness and that darkness can linger will help you as you walk into it to not abandon the faith. It would be like, let's say I'm sending you on a trip and so, you know, I tell you, hey, it's an overnight trip. We reserved a room for you. It's like the honeymoon suite. It's an awesome room. You're going to love it. You get there and it's just like a kind of dingy Motel 6 room. You're going to be really disappointed with that room. Now, if I send you away, though, and I say, hey, we're sending you away, the place you're staying is disgusting. It's like a holding cell, jail cell. I mean, it's just disgusting. You get up and you find a dingy Motel 6 room. You're like, well, this isn't too bad. This is actually better than what I was expecting. It's all the expectation, setting the reality for it. The Psalms, as part of the regular worship, as far as the regular prayer, A third of it is given to lament. A third of it is given to this idea where the psalmist cry, unite my heart. That idea of here's what I know to be true about God, but here's my experience. It feels very different. Here's how I feel. Bring that together. The the expectation is you're going to walk through seasons of darkness. And there's a couple psalms that just tell us that darkness, there might not be any light glimmering through. It doesn't feel that way. You need to learn how to be a Christian even when that is your reality. Number two is that darkness drives us to God. So darkness can linger. Secondly, darkness drives us to God. This whole psalm is included as a prayer for us, as instructive prayer of approaching God. This whole psalm is a man calling out to God, directing his prayer to God before the face of God, the God who saves him. His questions are to God. He's praying to God. It has driven him to God. He's not saying terribly nice things about God. He, he's not just bursting forth in joy, but he is driven to his God. 
And God is the God of his salvation, not because he's getting like all of his words and prayers just right, or that he, he's saying everything, you know, and, he, and he's not the God of his salvation because he's happy. He's the God of his salvation because he is a gracious God, and this darkness is driving him to God. That, that is true in our lives. I think you have, if you've experienced seasons of darkness, it, it does drive you to God. It, it drives you to seek for his deliverance, to seek his help. When you realize there's nothing I can do to get me out of this circumstance, and internally I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling consumed, that should drive us to God. It does the, the psalmist here, even though it's a word of anguish, it is a prayer, it is a pleading. Day and night he is before his God. Number three, darkness is a time for you to defeat Satan. Darkness is a time for you to defeat Satan. You know, we just said in those moments, Satan loves in those moments to get in there and to start to ask, make you ask questions. Is it worth it? Is any of this true? If God is good, then why am I going through this? Why do I believe any of this? We all, we come into questions like that when things are crumbling around us. When we feel like God has abandoned us, then we wonder, has he or is there even a God? Or, and we begin to reinterpret history just like the psalmist here has done. Again, Derek Kinder, in, in his, when he speaks of those two sorts of pain, the two sorts of darkness, that external darkness and internal darkness, he says when those things overlap is when you really need to experience the grace of God. Because often we serve and we love God out of gratitude and thankfulness, as we should. That, that he's done so much in our lives. And so we come and we worship and we praise and we are moved and we are thankful. And, and we, we see that blessing in our lives and we see people's kindness to us in our lives. And, and we respond in thankfulness and gratefulness for his provision and his blessing. But sometimes when all that is stolen from us, we can still respond with sort of the internal sort of confidence and hope and joy that we have. And when we serve others, it, it's still satisfying. We, we know that it's pleasing to the Lord, and it brings us a, a sense of, of joy and confidence. Not somewhat in a self-serving way, but not totally wrong. It, it, we serve because of how it can kind of make us feel, and because all that God has done for us. But Derek Kinder says, when, when these two overlap, when you experience darkness from the outside and darkness internally, all benefit from your worship and your service is gone. You're experiencing God's heavy hand, and so there isn't that gratitude. And it's not like your worship is somehow going to inspire God to treat you better because he's not answering your prayers. This is how it feels. And internally, your acts of service and your kindness, you feel alone. You feel lonely. You feel abandoned. It's not like coming to church. It's not like esteeming others. It's not like worshiping with others and, and loving others is doing anything for you. You get zero benefit from it. Isn't that the temptation that Satan brought to Job? You remember that when God says, look at Job, look at my man Job. 
Here is a servant. And Satan says, no, the only reason he's serving you is because all that you're doing for him. You take away all that he has. You take away all the blessings. You take away all the possessions. And then internally, you, you take away his friendships. You, you crush him from the outside and from the inside. And if it's not self-serving for Job, if he's not getting something out of it, he'll reject you, God. Everyone will. That's what Satan says. And so... That's exactly what happens to Job. He walks through that time and he loses everything. And you see internally there's darkness. He is consumed. And he begins to seek God's face. And he goes to God and he asks questions of God. And questions that seem inappropriate. And things about God that seem untrue. And yet as you get towards the end of Job, God says, Job has honored me. Because even in the darkness, he has learned how to worship, how to continually keep coming back before the throne of grace. He defeated Satan. He beat Satan. Because Satan said, if I take it away, if it's not benefiting you, if God's not benefiting you and blessing you, then you'll reject him. Sometimes in the darkness, it feels like it's no benefit to us. And yet, Job stayed before the face of God. We can continually come before the face of God, even if this is the type of prayer we're offering. We're coming, we're coming, we're coming, and we defeat Satan even in the darkness. Number four, darkness does not hide your light. When you're in that darkness, you do feel alone. You feel consumed. You feel suffocated from it. A sense that like sometimes people don't see you, know what you're going through, and anything you do, it just feels like I'm, I'm consumed by it. I'm suffocated by it. I'm invisible to people. The darkness can't consume your light, though. This psalm is written by a man, Heman, H-E-M-A-N. Maybe that's in the title of your psalm. We actually do know a little bit about him. Maybe it's, he's probably not one of your favorite Bible characters, but you, you do know a little bit about him. 1 Chronicles 6, 31-33. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they performed their service according to their order. These are the men who served and their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites, Heman, the singer, the son of Joel, son of Samuel. First Chronicles 16 brings them up again. With them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love that endures forever. Heman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. He was chosen and set apart to lead God's people in worship. He was a songwriter and a singer, a player of instruments. One of the few chosen as the choir master, the choir leader, to walk through with the people of God how we approach God, how we worship Him. You find his psalms in the 40s and in the 80s. You will find the psalms of Heman. Rich, rich psalms. That for 
years and decades and centuries have led the people of God in worship. Here is how we approach God. Here is joy. Here is lament. Here is praise. Here is how the church of God comes before its maker. Inspired, canonized words still using today that we're preaching about. That we use in singing and leading. And his testimony is, God's abandoned me. I'm in darkness. It's consuming me. And yet the light has shined brightly for years to lead the people of God in worship before him. In the darkness, even when it feels like there's no benefit to us, even when it feels like God has abandoned us, ignoring us, when we stay before the face of God and we pray and we serve others and we keep plugging along in the Christian faith, even in the darkness, that light can shine so brightly and impact many. Finally, fifth point is that this psalm is not really about you. Ultimately, this psalm is not about Heman. It's about Christ. Remember our two psalms that end with no hope, Psalm 39, where he just prays, turn your face away from me, God. I can't stand your judgment anymore. Psalm 88, the last word, O darkness. Listen to Matthew chapter 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Sound familiar? Darkness surrounds me. God's face turned away, forsaken by God. This is actually the reality for one person, and that's Jesus Christ. That He would come and for our sin, for our self-centeredness, Jesus would take the ultimate darkness so that our darkness, even though it feels heavy and it's real for us, it's only apparent. It's only momentary. He was abandoned by the Father. God turned His face away because of the disgustingness of all sin upon the Son. So that when we feel like God's abandoned, it only just feels like that. It just seems like that to us. And it's only momentarily that it even seems like that. The real comfort, the real hope about this darkness 
is that this is just how it feels for us in a life that is passing away sometimes. And I'm not discrediting how heavy it can feel. But it was the reality for Jesus so that it is not actually our reality. Light bursts through the darkness in Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting here that Heman's experience is normative for all of us. That this is how we're all going to feel all the time. But I also want us to be careful that this isn't just some depressed, one-off guy. I think we would be surprised how often, even where we're sitting now, the people around us, how many people feel consumed with darkness. You might not have a clue, but that might be exactly how they feel. And it might be ongoing and long for those who have faced devastating hurt where the happily ever after that they had dreamed of is no longer a possibility. If that's not an experience, you will have a season or two like this in your life. Maybe it's just from the own internal confusion and difficulty of, of growing older and reevaluating your life and, and looking where you stand. Maybe it'll be outside circumstances. Whatever it might be, you'll have a season like this. You need to learn to worship God in the dark, just like Heman did. Remember that question that he asked Jesus sort of sarcastically? Verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed, do the dead rise up to praise you? We just read Matthew 5. Or Matthew 27, I'm sorry. We just read Matthew 27. The answer is yes. The dead rose up and praised Jesus. Because of his resurrection, the answer to that is yes. The dead do raise up to praise you. There isn't total hopelessness as long as you believe in the resurrection. And if you're a Christian, you believe in the resurrection. Despair, darkness, that's not going to be your end game. It might feel like it for a moment. But Heman, yes, the dead do raise up to praise our God because Jesus experienced the darkness, experienced the forsakenness of God. And yet he rose up. And he raises others up. I'll close with this quote just from a commentator as he looked at this psalm. He says, This darkness can happen to a believer, but it does not mean that you are lost. This darkness can happen to someone who doesn't deserve it. It doesn't mean you have strayed. This darkness can happen at any time as long as this world lasts, because only in the next world will such things be totally done away with. Darkness can happen without you even knowing why. But there are answers, there is a purpose, and eventually you will know it. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it's easier to avoid topics like this. It's easier to avoid people who feel these experiences and just pretend like everything's okay. If they would just get a smile on their face, we'd feel better about it. Maybe this is our own experience now. Maybe it will be in the future. 
Whatever it is, Lord, help us to take this example and to learn how to worship you in the dark, how to pray to you in the dark, how to be a Christian even when life falls apart, externally, internally, we don't have that united heart. What we know to be true about God just isn't how we feel. So we pray with the psalmist, unite our hearts. Even in the deepest darkness and grief and sorrow, unite our hearts. Ultimately, we thank you for Jesus Christ, which, Lord, gives us joy and gives us victory and gives us hope right now. There's so much joy in Christ. So I don't want to paint a picture that this is everyone's experience all the time. Yet our real hope and our real joy comes in knowing that Jesus Christ experienced this for us so that our reality is eternal joy and happiness with our Father. I'll invite the worship team back up. Just take a moment in thoughtfulness and we'll return.